right. I'm cutting out my baseball trading cards. What trading cards? The ones you get free on all post cereal packages. There's Roger Maris and Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle. He looks so real. It's time to play ball with Airwaves Full of Bacon, the Chicago-based food and restaurant podcast by me, Michael Gebert, James Beard award-winning video producer and writer for the Chicago Reader, Thrillist, and more. Why are we playing ball when it's the off-season? Well, first batter up, I talked to Don Curry, who just launched the Southern Pitch Food Truck, serving up soul food and Negro League baseball history. Then I sit down at one of 2014's hot new restaurants, MFK, and talk to owner Scott Worsham and chef Nick Lacasse about opening a Spanish seaside joint just in time for a Chicago winter. Two and a half years ago, I made a Sky Full of Bacon documentary about Black Earth Meats in Wisconsin and owner Bartlett Duran's efforts to change the food system. They've had a lot of news since then, none of it good. We'll talk about that. And newly certified by the Illinois Bar, he's back. Anthony Todd, who's writing for the Sun-Times Splash and associate editor of Grays these days. He and I will kick around Michelin, Shake Shack, and a zillion other things happening on the food scene these days. That's on episode 15 of Airwaves Full of Bacon, where we play them one day at a time, and we're just happy to be here. It's nine in the morning on a loading dock, and the smell of soul food is in the air, while I'm reading a 70-year-old sports story plastered on the side of a truck. I'm at the home base on Cermak for the Southern Pitch Food Truck, a new food truck serving soul food with a side of Negro League baseball history. It's the dream of Don Curry, who teaches entrepreneurship at McCormick University in the Loop, and who recently started putting it into practice. We go into the front seat of the truck to find a quiet place to talk. Okay. So this is the mothership. All right. Sit up here. This whole thing started. Uh, went to college at Virginia State University. Got out there in uh, 89, right? And it was a big trend for uh, fitted baseball caps back then. Yeah. So it went from the snapbacks to the to the fitted. Now it's back to the snapback hats again. It's pretty funny. So uh, I wanted to, here I am a kid from uh, Nebraska by way of Chicago. I lived out in uh, Oldville Gardens until I was eight. My mom got to finish her nursing program and we moved to Omaha, uh, which is where my my dad's stepdad was from. So here I am, uh, a freshman in college at Virginia State University, driving a a convertible Fiat Spider yellow. And uh, I'm like, well, you know, I'm different already, so I don't want to get the same hats, the New York hats or the Sox hats. So I basically go to this hat store and see uh, Negro League hats. So they just, like, they called me. So it's yeah. like the Kansas City Monarchs had me uh, Indianapolis Clowns. Thought nothing of it. Just, you know, all right, I'm not going to be trendy. I'm just getting something different. So that was 89. Uh, 92, I go to this festival in Portsmouth, Virginia, and this guy's selling a Negro League pictorial book. About a thousand pictures, Mike, of just nothing but Negro League teams. So I look at the book, like the way the guys look, and just the stature that they held, looking, you know, the pictures and posing. Bought the book. Sitting right next to him is Mamie Peanuts Johnson. Right? Ah. There were three women that played Connie Morgan, Tony Stone, and Mamie. 
So he tells me, he's like, yeah, her name's in the back of the book. So she signs it. I'm stepping away. She's like, nah, nah, baby, that's $5. I'm like, man, my man Colin, I just spent 10 bucks. She's like, I'm sorry, baby. Gave me a hug, and I gave her 5 bucks. So that was 93. Uh, finished there, go to grad school at uh, University of Denver from uh, 94 to 95 for uh, taxation. So I got a bachelor's in accounting, master's in taxation. No restaurant experience whatsoever. Um, get to... Uh, University of Denver finish up there and I decided I'm going to come to Chicago in 95 I get a job at Allstate as a tax analyst and uh, was in October of 95 so some of the guys decide that hey we're going to go to Negro League's hat night at Kamitsky so I'm like I'm in we get there and uh, the guys that actually became my good friends Al Spearman uh, Double Duty Radcliffe are there signing autographs and the line was just long so I'm standing there like man I'm not getting in this line I'll just stand up by the table and watch and just you know pound some beers and just be in awe so it was as if something whispered in my ear like if these people are willing to stand in this line to get these guys autographs why wouldn't they patronize a restaurant uh, with a theme revolving around them so you think about it the early 90s that was the whole theme restaurant boom right Hard Rock Cafe Fashion Cafe Motown Cafe uh, NASCAR Cafe Planet Hollywood started to really catch take off then so I ran with it and just stuck with me to where I wrote the first business plan 10 pages in 97 uh, by this time, I'm at uh, Nuveen Investments as a mutual fund accountant. Uh, i there for six years, get promoted every year that I'm there, but I'm still, you know, writing the business plan and refining it and pitching it to bankers. So in 03, I finally get the funding. Uh, and Nick, let me, uh, let me finish this. And uh, I finally get the funding uh, to do the Negro League Cafe. We were located off of 43rd and Prairie from 04 to 09. Okay. Um, lost the lease, the landlord thought we wouldn't get the Olympics and didn't want to renew. I was kind of burnt out at that point in time and just decided to kind of walk away and uh, went to New York for about from June of 09 until September of 09 until I realized, all right, you're running out of cash, you probably need to go home and get a job. <laughs> and uh, So I decided I was going to teach, which is what I'm doing now. So um, yeah, I met this guy, who was the, you know, New York epicenter of food trucks, right? Yeah. Met this guy on their little strip of uh, food trucks and I forget the street, but it was like 10 of them. So I get to talking to him. Tell him about my restaurant, and he looked it up on uh, Google. I was like, man, wow, you know, you should really reconsider doing it. But he's like, you ever thought about doing it off of a truck? And I'm like, well, why would I? He was like, I'll put it to you this way. I'm a five-star chef. I worked at the Waldorf Astoria. I knew I couldn't afford anything in New York to lease. So I got this truck. I think in 09, he said he was 75 grand in. Told me it already grossed a million in that truck, and had been in it for about a year, right? So I get back here, uh, start substitute teaching. Now I'm actually a college professor and a program director at um, McCormick College okay. over their, uh, their entrepreneurship uh, program as well. So I've been there for about two years. So my students have actually got to kind of witness this whole thing uh, happen uh, since last year, yeah. you know, as well. So we're using my grandmother's recipes, fast forward to today. Uh, thanks a lot. We're using my grandmother's uh, recipes uh, for everything, you know, even down to like seasoning the meats and the whole nine. You know, it's the it's the, the passion for it all to where, you know, I believe that when all of the Negro League players are, 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 are no longer with us, that I'll actually be able to create living memorials. The goal is actually to basically make this a chain, uh, you know, of uh, establishments across the country. You know, hit Memphis, Nashville, uh, Austin, Houston, uh, Atlanta. All the city, Pittsburgh, all the cities that actually had really great Negro League teams, Birmingham, and kind of set up uh, what I would call uh, like the Birmingham Black Barons Canteen. You come in, cafeteria style, you grab your food, 
uh, grab a seat and you can just look around and just really digest the history, which is where that comes from, from the visual aspect of things. I was of the thought that the black and white photos and the paintings actually kind of tell a better story than the gloves and the baseball jerseys because it was just something about the look in their eyes that says that, you know what, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to bitch and moan, excuse my French, about not being able to allow to play a game. Uh, we're just going to basically master the game and compete. And I, I think that if a lot of people really took that philosophy in life, you know, the world would be a much better place and, you know, you wouldn't really have as much crime and whatnot because people were able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, these guys told me just from talking to them over the years that, you know, it beat sharecropping. You know, they may have been away from their homes for, for a while, but, you know, it beat sharecropping and making $50 a month, whereas you can actually pay baseball, do something that you love to make $200 a month. You're, you know, just as good as well. Yeah. All right, so what food goes with the Negro League Baseball? Uh, well, I'll put it to you this way. When I, when I interviewed the guys, basically, before I put the menu together, and I said, what what can, should I basically put on the menu? They said, well, you know, put the stuff on there that we ate. And I knew that, but I just wanted to hear them say it. So it's like, well, what would you eat on the road? Now, keep in mind, they couldn't stay at hotels. They stayed at people's homes. So it was collard greens. It was candied yams. It was fried chicken. You know, it was, uh, one guy even told me that, you know, they would eat every damn near the whole pig. But, you know, I don't eat pork, so I figured I'm not going to. Uh, sorry, Mike. <laughs> I, may, I may backslide every now and then and eat some bacon. <laughs> but uh, but uh, those items. So that's why, you know, the menu kind of revolves around it. But yet at the same time, I figured we kind of had to add some uh, traditional American fare. So we have a uh, baked turkey. We're baking everything, too, as far as the wings go and the turkey legs. And we're pulling the meat off of the turkey legs and actually making a six-inch sub with that. We're doing a chicken Philly, which we call it the Philadelphia Stars uh, chicken Philly. We got the Norman Turkey Stearns uh, turkey sub as well. So, you know, just really kind of, in a sense, putting names out there and labeling the, the items after the players and whatnot. Uh, the side items are called Effie Manley's, uh, you know, Southern Conference, and she was the owner of the, uh, the Newark Eagles as well. So just all of the staples that you knew you would, you would get, you know, a black family if you stay with their home. So yeah, so what's people's reaction been so far? Uh, yesterday we were at um, the college that I work at, so McCormick College, so we were at uh, Madison and Wabash. Uh, a woman actually had the uh, the collard greens uh, with no meat, called them the vegetarian collard greens. Uh, I think we got one of the guys that uh, shares the kitchen with us, Kip, was like, what the hell is vegetarian collard greens? <laughs> it's like, no meat, bro. He's like, ah, I get it, I get it. So a lady uh, bought some of those yesterday, which I prepared, the, uh, I prepared the, the greens uh, the candy gams and the other guys are actually doing the dressing in the other size, but again, they're using you know my grandmother's recipe. But I prepare the the vegetarian collard greens with apple cider vinegar and fresh uh, cut garlic. So she basically posted on Facebook that you know the greens were the bomb. You know, so it's been great. I mean, people love the food, and the big difference now is that when I had the restaurant, social media was not what it is today. Yeah. Whereas immediately, as soon as they take a bite now, it's instant. So where's the truck go? Uh, today we're going to go to University of Chicago. We're going to get there at 11 o'clock and uh, set up for lunch there for two hours. So University of Chicago, we're going to try to hit up 608 uh, South LaSalle, uh, set up between Clark and Monroe. Uh, actually go over to uh, like the UIC Medical Center area as well. Kind of mandated to go over to 26 in California as well, even though I, it's just gloomy over there to me, even yeah. when the sun's out, you know, but still, you know, I guess they got to eat too. Find out where the Southern Pitch food truck will be by following it on Facebook or at Southern Pitch FT on Twitter.
some new Chicago restaurants have a big build-up before they open. MFK just kind of snuck into its spot at 432 West Diversey, not the most exciting food strip in town. But it quickly won over its neighborhood and more, with an unpretentious take on Spanish seaside food. Owner Scott Worsham and Chef Nick Lacasse are both veterans of Chicago restaurants, and MFK has the assured feel of a place that has nothing to prove and just wants to make you happy with good food and drink. I went to interview them recently, though maybe hung out is a better word for the conversation we had. How did this whole idea come about? Well, uh, my wife, Sari uh, Zernich, and I had been talking about doing a restaurant for like probably the last four or five years, ever since she got me to move back to Chicago. And um, we've been going back and forth on a couple different concepts. And uh, last July, we were in, uh, or last summer, I should say, not this last July, but a year ago, we were in Spain for about three weeks. And, uh, you know, I think as uh, most people do when they go to Spain, who love food and conviviality and a relaxed lifestyle, you fall in love with Spain. And then I just realized, I looked around, there were all these like just regular neighborhood places that had just like this really great food. And I was like, well, we kind of had this weird thing in America where we kind of put food up on a pedestal. It's like not attainable for everyday mortals. And so I started formulating this idea of like maybe having something that's a little more European feeling where it could be a neighborhood place that just has really solid, good food um, and strip away the pretension and, you know, some of the more highfalutin things we, we seem to attach to food and restaurants and chefs in America. Well, uh, speaking of stuff on a pedestal, I mean, you came from Charlie Travers. No, I did not. Oh, you did? No, that's my wife, Sari. Oh, okay. And Nick as well. Nick did some time there. Okay, a little bit. Remember the Trouter Mafia? Hmm. <laughs> the wide, the far-reaching. It's a lifestyle. Yeah, this, this, <laughs> this thing of ours. Um, no, I, I did not come from that. I do come from some fine dining background, but I've worked in all different kinds of places, but I felt like there was one, there was a, a little bit of a, and this is, uh, these are only things that I'm starting to come to realize now that we've been open for a few months. I don't think it was this well formulated in the beginning. Um, in the beginning, I just knew that I wanted to have like a neighborhood place that had really solid food that felt breezy and light, um, kind of a seaside feel. I think part of that was in reaction to our last winter being so long and brutal. And, uh, you know, we do some great things in Chicago and food in the food world. One of them is we do dark rooms and pork and bourbon very, very well here. So I thought that's pretty much covered in this town. And as much as I love dark rooms that are heavy on pork and bourbon, I, I thought it might be nice to have something that was like the antithesis of that. Uh, so that was kind of the general idea behind the whole place. What got you here? Um, I think uh, the, the few words in a Craigslist ad, no egos on the plate, was, <laughs> was the thing that was the big turn on. Yeah. Um, and then I interviewed and uh, met Scott and made the association with Sari, who, you know, with my little time at Trotters, you know, of course, Sari was very well known. And, uh, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm sure those guys are going to do it right. So, it's, uh, and then and then I saw I saw uh, MFK on a on a page, and I knew exactly what it was about. Not the concept, but I knew that it was you know about MFK Fisher, who I'm a huge fan of. I feel like the the uh, any cook or chef who's been doing it a long time will tell you that removing your ego from the plate is like the hardest thing to do. Like doing the simplest thing 
well, like repeatedly, is like the hardest thing you can do as a cook. Like, make a perfect omelet. Okay, now make 40 of them in a row. You know, that's like the most, that's like the hardest thing. Like, who knows how to roast a chicken anymore or make a perfect omelet? Like, these little, what, what should be most basic things, building blocks, have been kind of like pushed to, to the side a little bit in, in favor of, let me show you what I can do and who I am. And every cooking show talks about you're finding your voice. And I'm, I feel like that pendulum is swinging too far to that side of, of cooking in America. Like, what happens to just basic everyday cooking? And, and I think this is kind of a mature chef. I've had a lot, a lot of talks with Nick about this and with uh, my friend uh, John Mannion over at La Serena about removing your ego from the, from the whole thing is like, I think the, the, the true sign of a mature chef or a mature cook. also a thing of how you go into some of these restaurants and it's such an event and you don't always want to go to an event right sometimes you just want to eat dinner yeah <laughs> you know which is sounds like a basic concept but from what i'm getting and i think nick would agree with me the reaction that people are having to this restaurant is like it's like mind-blowing like it's uh, some kind of like weird thing that we're doing here like we're just we're just cooking some food, man. That's all we're doing. And giving you a nice place to hang out in and some wine to drink with it and some nice cocktails. But people are like treating it like it's, I mean, I don't want to sound like a too overblown ego-wise here or anything like that, but, but people are having this really strong visceral reaction to the place that I was not expecting, to be honest. I've, I've been so surprised of like, number one, especially that like, huge number of my like local chef heroes have been in multiple times and I, I can't believe that you know they're so just <coughs> kind of blown away by the simplicity and just like our approach you know like you know like talking about roasting the chicken like a lot of times these days I feel like you know most young chefs will be like well why would you when you can sous vide you know like why right. would you and like, stuff it with truffles and yeah you know, and you all know the, all make it not things. look like a chicken exactly which you know it has its place but like Roasting a chicken also has its place. Right. And let's be clear about that. That is true. It's a big world, and I'm glad that everybody can fit under the umbrella. But it is strange, I think, that we've come to the point now in this country where it feels like this is a weird thing to do, what we're doing. So maybe it has gone too far to the, you know, the, I don't know what you want to call it. I know molecular is not a cool word to use anymore, but what do you call that style? Modernist, I guess. Modernist cuisine? Or just sort of art cuisine. Art cuisine, yeah. Food is art. And I was, I was writing this essay the other day that I, I'm thinking about putting out there about this subject, about the, how far the pendulum is swung and about how... Uh, why, why are we so afraid of food in this country? You know? Like, raising your own animals and slaughtering them for your own meat should be like a, a constitutional right. You know? <laughs> but it's wildly illegal. You know? What are we so afraid of in this country about food? Why does it scare us so much? I don't understand it. Because if you go any other country in the world, any the poorest country in the world, they, their food is like a thousand percent better than ours. Just stuff you find in the street for like a quarter. You know, it may or may not kill you, but it's damn tasty before it does. You know. <laughs> Let's talk about Spain particularly. I mean, do you think that's a country that especially lends itself to that sort of simplicity? Because this, I'm going to say, sort of reminded me of like Cal Pep in Barcelona, 
where a guy walks in off the pier holding wet stuff and dumps it in their kitchen and they fry it and it's on your plate. Yeah. You know? Well, I, actually, this is a place as a direct result of me having eaten lunch in Calpep in Barcelona okay. last, last summer. I, I, that's my last meal on earth, if I had to pick <laughs> one, is, is a four-hour lunch at Calpep with, with Chef Joe Pep serving me as he did at our meal, which was incredible. But yeah, that simplicity of like just, it's just, see, we go over there and we freak out about food as Americans, but people in Spain are just like, I don't know what the big deal is, man. We eat like this every day. Like it's just normal. Right. I mean, to <laughs> and me like to us, it's like, oh my God, it's food. Well, and I was thinking of Cal Pepa, like I'm basically in like the Billy Goat of Barcelona. That's exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly <laughs> it. It's no more ambitious or pretentious yeah. than that. Except instead of cheeseburgers, it's squid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think I really communicated with anyone there because I don't speak Spanish. We got purely lucky. We had no idea that we were going to be sat at the counter right where Chef Joe Pep was stationed. He waited on us. He speaks no English. Yeah. I speak no Catalan. But somehow we managed to communicate and yeah. had well, a yeah, fantastic... Well, yeah, you know, they got out one English question, which was, should we just bring you stuff? Basically. Nice. Like, yeah. So, the most important yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. We, I, I actually, in our early days, I thought about doing a thing where, like, we didn't have a menu. We just said, you want, you know, meat, fish, or vegetable? And people said yes to all three. We do all three, or one, we just do one. And then have those weird Spanish hours, like, yeah. lunches one to four, dinners eight to midnight. <laughs> and I realized that that would never work in this, never work in Chicago. Yeah. I don't know, it'd be a great option on the menu, though. I would have gone for that. Just bring me stuff. Just bring me stuff. Yeah. yeah. Say I when. Of, I kind of ordered that one. Say when to stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We could totally do a little red card, green card thing. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> little flag. Yeah. No more. Yeah. Here we are in Chicago. How do you get the things that they get because a guy walked up the pier? Well, I mean, we use the best, you know, the best suppliers, you know, we, I, I love the, the seafood purveyors we have and sort of unintentionally, you know, I'll be looking at our, our invoice, you know, once we get seafood in and I'm like, oh, bocarones from Spain, you know, octopus from Spain, you know, it's, 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 it may not be necessarily all from that area, but I think the important thing is just getting the best that you can get and create the environment to fill out the whole experience. You know, like, you're, you're never gonna, you know, I've heard people say like, oh, this was really good, but you know, it wasn't the same as when I was sitting next to the sea, you know, in Spain, and I'm like, well, you were in Spain, you know? <laughs> it, that octopus might have been three days old, but you were sitting next to the surf, you know? So I, I love that, like, trying to use the best, freshest ingredients well, you know, in this, little, you know, breezy, bright-colored room, I, I feel like, you know, we do the best we can with... Uh, and we're not trying to be slavish to, to, to Spanish cuisine at no. all. Like, there's no Papa's Bravas or like, Paella or anything like that. We're, we're just trying to take that kind of feel to the and, and apply it to this city. Well, and that's a good Like, point. he's got some dish, He's got a dish to, to put on because we're selling so many prawn heads, we had to do something with the extra tail, so came with this pickled green papaya salad, which is definitely Asian Thai. It, d delicious, people love it. But So we'd like to be anywhere where like, you know, we, we used to say like where the mountains meet the sea or anywhere kind of seaside -y that 
we want to pull a dish from Baja, we'll pull a dish from Baja. We, we're not going to be strictly all Spanish all the time. It's, it's like when early days when we were trying to come up with a name, and I had the name MFK from MFK Fisher in my back pocket for like the last 20 years or something. I tried to open up one in New York back in like 2001 or so with a friend back there. And we had the name MFK for a simple little cafe. And then so everyone was like, well, that means French food to me. And I kept having to tell people that, uh, well, to me, that's not what MFK Fisher stands for. It's not because she went to France when she was 19 years old or whatever and ate French food and talked about living in France. She would talk about the simplicity of, you know, kind of goes back to the old figs on a plate argument maybe, but just the simplicity of, the, of, of things, simple food with friends and loved ones and, you know, that, that kind of idea is where, where we're coming from with that. And, and I think that goes with the Spanish style as well that we're embracing or even an Asian style or uh, a Baja Sur or Baja Norte dishes that we might put on the menu. Just kind of a simple... The ceremony of it. The ceremony of it, huh. <laughs> yeah, so just try and keep it as simple as we can. Not, not, not overdo it. Take, take all the extraneous things that you might put on the, on the plate and then let's like pare it down to like the skeleton of the dish that makes it work and then maybe add one thing to it. Or not, or just leave it alone. Like, the, the whole shrimp, it's just shrimp off the plancha with some chili oil. Alright, but if you're expanding into other global flavors, how do you keep that from getting muddled? What, what makes a Thai salad work on this menu? I think just because it's fresh and simple. and uh, Bright flavors. Bright, yeah, bright flavors. You know, we, the acid. Yeah, high acid, high, you know, crunchy raw vegetables, just a, uh, you know, very, I don't know, summer, summery, you know, like kind of picnic food. Seaside. Picnic food's a good way to describe some a lot of the things we're going for, yeah. Yeah, that was one thing that struck me about like the, the razor clams. I think the really exotic things that you put on them are like butter, lemon, and parsley or something. Yeah, like sure. Like, yeah. yeah, where's where's my tomato jam? Right, right. <laughs> Does it, is that does that just feel good to just do what people yeah, are doing I mean, in 1915 and something like that? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's the way I think that we'd like to eat, you know, and, and like there are times where I like to, you know, try new adventurous things, you know, for the sake of serving it to somebody, but that's for the majority of the time not what I want to eat. You know, I don't want to eat a seven component dish. I want to eat something in butter with fresh herbs and a little splash of lemon. You know, that's, uh, you know, just way I would do it if I was cooking for myself, so that's pretty much how we do it here. It's like when you see those, uh, a book or whatever where they talk about chefs and talk to chefs about their last meal. On right, Earth. yeah. And it's always like something that Nana made or, I mean, it's always like the most simple basic thing, buttered toast, you know, right. that kind of thing. It's, right. it's never like a 40-course tasting menu at El Bouilly or anything. Right. <laughs> it's always like a piece of chicken and peas. There you go. <laughs> is, it, is that your last meal, Mike? No, probably not. Barbecue, I guess. I don't know. Barbecue? Yes. Let's interview Mike right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, what's your last meal on, on planet Earth? I think barbecue. Yeah. Barbecue? Yeah. Particular Any particular barbecue. kind? Especially if I was Texas, to be, uh, St. Louis. I was about to be barbecue. Um, <laughs> New yeah, Orleans? Yeah, Texas. I think Texas stands out the most. Texas? Yeah. Um, you know, the, just the heavy smoke flavor. I liked it better. It's like we went to Memphis and had to 
it took about two or three meals to sort of get Memphis barbecue because I was looking for Texas characteristics. I wanted big smoky flavor, and that's not what it's about. It's the whole thing. It's the white bread and the pulled pork and the kind of Swedish sauce and, and a sweet dish. Not sweet yeah, dish. they're more like St. Louis style, right? Yeah, Memphis. yeah. Only with more heat, I think, right? Not even the heat. I mean, no? At least the things I had tended to be kind of on the sweeter side, but uh, you know, I was, I was waiting for that that big Texas pickle ass flavor that kind of wasn't there. So. I think I lean more towards the Carolina vinegary. Yeah. Uh, that is not my jam at all. Uh, it makes a good sandwich. Yeah. Pulled pork. I don't know if I call that barbecue. Though. I grew up on the sweet, wet stuff, but now I'm more with the dry rub smoke. Yeah. I mean, here we are talking about pork again. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to avoid. Damn it! <laughs> Scott Worsham did end up writing that piece he talked about. You can read it at Morsel. I'll have the link for that and plenty of other things in the show post at skyfullofbacon.com. And while we're here threading up the digital recorder for part two of this episode, remember, you can help support these podcasts by sharing them with other people on social media like Twitter and Facebook, and by subscribing at iTunes or Stitcher. You'll find all those links at Skyfull of Bacon, too. And if you're traveling this holiday season, load up some past episodes of Airwaves Full of Bacon on the iPod or phone or whatever, and take them along, too. Nothing says the holidays like Elena Reagan hunting frogs, me and Michael Nagrant ragging on restaurants, or Craig Perman and others discussing Chicago's lack of a wine scene. At least you won't have to listen to your in-laws if you're plugged into all that. And isn't that the greatest gift of all? The idea is to bring sustainable foods, especially in this case meats in particular, down the levels. Locally, I can go direct to restaurants, I can go direct to the consumer at a very competitive price and give them a very good quality product from their neighbors. Whether they're actual neighbors or they can go meet them, either way there's a connection available to them. And it's that shrinking of the food chain through a regional processor that's employing people from the community that helps create this whole infrastructure of a regional food system. That's Bartlett Durand, owner of Black Earth Meats in Black Earth, Wisconsin, near Madison. Two and a half years ago, I made a documentary, The Butcher's Karma, in which he talked about his vision for a local food system, which he was trying to make happen in Black Earth. Now Black Earth Meats has been shut down, and he's suing the small town of Black Earth for $5 million. What went wrong? I spoke with him by phone about how his vision for a local food system ran into the vision of some of its neighbors, whose vision of the food system was that it needed to stay out of sight and out of mind. They're all retired, and they're, you know, they're elderly. One of them's got the big sign on, remember, it says, Save America, Buy American. 
or whatever, and I think they just want peace and quiet and no one to bother them. And we were bothering them because truckloads of animals would show up, animals make noise getting off the thing, the truck would dump the awful, oh my gosh, look, it's a horrible, one woman would walk her grand, granddaughter and like, oh, we saw an animal head outside. You know, it's just, they didn't like the reality of what was there. And we really just want to be, um, you know, a little bedroom community. And I think that was probably in that time they made the decision that, uh, you know, as a village, as it were, you know, it's, we, we don't want to have this kind of business here. We want to just remain a you know place for people to sleep. The village board is primarily made up of people who don't work in town. And the people who work in town often don't live in town. So you have this weird clash of the businesses that make up the town aren't considered part of the town by the people on the village board, if you, okay. that makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that, and that's, that was one of the frustrating. And then the other thing that happened around that time, you know, the neighbors got really motivated, if you will, um, and again, they're, they're literally like three primary people, and then they had relatives or a couple of friends who would jump on. Um, they decided they would start calling everyone they, they could figure out to call and call them repeatedly. So the Department of Natural Resources, I think, got something like 30-something calls in one day, you know, that there's this horrible stuff going on. So they came rushing down and went, there's no problem, <laughs> like, Yes, we're federally inspected. We take care of this stuff. We know what we're doing. They're like, okay, thanks so much. But then, you know, they sent a nice letter. We've been shooting complaints. And please make sure you're, you know, complying with all laws. Yes, yes, of course we are. And then they get another round of calls and another round of calls. And the state senator was getting calls. And the, the federal government was getting calls. I mean, they just start calling everybody. All of them are receiving calls from the same people. But then they think there's this huge cacophony going on. What they told me, and they told me this directly to my face and later in the board meeting, there was not one thing I could do, or there was nothing I could do to mitigate what they saw as just a fundamentally inappropriate business in their neighborhood, meaning slaughter could not exist in their village, period. That's what the neighbors were pushing for. I kept trying to explain, you know, the, the business is the slaughter. And they're like, no, 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 no. It's you know, we don't have any problem with the retail. Just the rest of the business. It's like, <laughs> how does it get there? That's right. That is the business. So anyway, so we get to this board meeting. They, I think, three or four days before the board meeting, they put something on the public notice. You know, discussion of Blackbird's needs. Consider you know, discussion with the attorney about possible legal action. So I freak out. We have like a hundred people come to this meeting, uh, most of whom are totally in support of us. So you have the same same neighbors saying the same story. And then you have all our farmers. We have other neighbors who live equally close or closer saying no problem whatsoever. And they, um, uh, there's just this kind of general feeling of, it's okay. We got this. Well, then they came out with their letter. Yep. And this started this whole cavalcade, this whole cascade of problems. I basically lost $700,000 of financing guaranteed by the USDA in one day with this announcement. A bunch of my customers started freaking out. As you can imagine, we had two or three big custom accounts, 40 head a day, 50 head a day, 
who were like, um, we're concerned because if this happens, we lose our processor. So they started, one of them just stopped altogether. The other started looking for other options and eventually moves that way. But we pointed out, it's like, look, you can, if you don't like us here, you can buy us out. But you can't just force us to move. And there's no way for me to move without somebody compensating because every shred of money I've got is in this building. Was there any reaction when you filed suit? Um, I, we did the notice of claim. I, we don't think they actually thought we would ever file suit. Um, they said no, nothing. You just take just several million dollar loss. Right. <laughs> yeah. We're just, uh, you know, one, one person's opinion, and I, I don't know. I mean, there, you get rumors and stuff that they, they view me, and this came up in the village to town meeting that everybody was there that apparently I'm viewed as this rich outsider. <laughs> I'm not I'm not from the village, and that I didn't just go, oh, okay, and then move somewhere else. And they don't realize the reality of, you know, this is the, the passion and the dream of a young, young entrepreneur that literally everything is in there. So it's, uh, it's pretty brutal. So now the village is very upset. I mean, the village as a whole is very upset because the village of Blackhurst has been given a bad name by the village board members and these neighbors. And so everyone else is upset at them, but no one wants to run for the board. They're all willing to vote those guys out, but no one will step up to run for the board. And I, I honestly think on the more systemic, and you met me, Mike, I mean, I'm such a systems thinker and I can't get away from it, but one of the fundamental problems here is I'm a huge believer in small democracy, but that means people need to be engaged. And when people aren't engaged, being informed and voting and running, being the public servant, then you get stuff like this going on. There's no training for these guys. They don't have formal counsel sitting at the board meeting advising them as a municipal attorney. You know, they, they went out and hired a you know, private counsel. And it's like, well, who's actually telling you if what you can do is legal? <laughs> you know, it's constitutional. And the, the amount of power a municipality has um, to do things like this is, is pretty frightening. And so a lot of people now are coming forward like, oh, this is so wrong, this is terrible. And it's like, well, we run to the board. Oh, I, I really don't have time. It's like, well, there is part of your problem. <laughs> right there. Have you thought uh, of running? I can't. I don't live in the village. Oh, uh, okay. I would love to run. I mean, it's, I'm considering running in Middleton. I mean, it's, you know, I've, I, there are good people here in Middleton. I try to stay engaged here, but um, it's, I don't live, it's, I'm, the, I'm the business owner in Blacker. If you don't live in Blacker, yeah, it's back to one of those early things I said. And they have that little bit of schism. And you had the newcomers and the old timers and, you know, any changing demographic things going on that way. Um, but fundamentally, all I know is we had those, you know, 200 plus farmers we bought from, we're in 100 restaurants really had this thing mapped out, planned out. I brought new investors in to really help with this expansion. And it's just, the whole thing just went squish. Which, again, personally offends me. It's like I, it, every Main Street had a butcher, a baker, and a candlestick maker. I mean, what your light, your food, and your, um, when they had a bar, I guess, and a church. I mean, that's what every town had. You know, it was just, it was a fundamental part of life. And I hate it that we're trying to hide this out there.
Bartlett Durand has a Kickstarter going to cover the costs of moving Black Earth Meat's equipment to a new location, where he hopes to restart the business. The link for that and more is at skyfullofbacon.com. Food writer Anthony Todd is now a lawyer. Congratulations! So if you want his opinion on beating your rap, it'll cost you big bucks. But if you want his opinion on the food scene, it costs the same as it did this time last year, when we were predicting what Michelin would do in episode 6. This year I thought we'd time it to just after Michelin's announcements. So we'll start there, and then go where the conversation takes us, in talking about the Chicago food scene as it is in late 2014. You are a newly minted lawyer. I am a newly minted lawyer. I'm going to give you your first client. <laughs> Defend Michelin! No! <laughs> Defend Michelin. You have to take... They're a client. They deserve representation. That's our system. So defend Michelin against all the obvious things that everyone always says against them when they do their thing every November. Well, if you're going to plead the system as your way of getting me to do this, then you have to accuse me before I mount a defense. <laughs> so what are the things you're complaining about? Okay, the charges against Michelin that it's it's too conservative, it's too stuffy, it, it claims it's all about the food, but it obviously doesn't like certain things like communal seating and lack of tablecloths and all that kind of stuff. And that it just misses so much of what's good about our scene compared to what people here know. I'll have to plead guilty on it misses our scene, though I think that leads into another defense, which is it's imposing an outside rubric on Chicago. That's always been the case. That's what some people love about it, is it's a rubric that's consistent from place to place to place, but Chicago is a unique food city and it doesn't get us. It just doesn't. Now, I can defend it in the sense that I think most of the restaurants that have stars, most, deserve them. I think the things that have three stars deserve three stars. I think the things that have two stars deserve two stars. So I don't think anyone can attack them by saying the restaurants they have recognized are objectively awful. I don't think anyone can say that about anything on the list. Are they missing a lot of stuff? Well, yeah, they're missing some stuff. But does that make them really guilty? I don't think it does. (laughs) (laughs) And if they're guilty, don't we have to accuse the entire educational system? Exactly. Now, lawyer hat off. I'm not super fond of their choices. But at the end of the day, they're picking big, fancy, expensive, expense account restaurants, and they do an okay job of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that would be my defense. First off is that, as you say, it's it's an outside point of view, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's easy for a scene to get too insular, too much groupthink, and it's good to have an outside perspective. I don't find theirs particularly interesting. No. It's kind of stuffy. It's definitely conservative. Um, and to me, the big offense, and, and it comes back to the same restaurants that we talked about a year ago, basically, is they like fussy food a bit. They like fussy service. They like places that do that kind of thing. And the places that do great, simple stuff in our city, the, the Vera's, the Bristol, which got kicked off the Bib Gourmands. It probably, it probably got too expensive for the Bib Gourmands, but it never made it into having a star, which yeah. is absurd. Um 
you know, the the MFK was the Midwestern restaurants. Let's be honest. Yeah, this, they have a Midwestern sensibility of simple and plenty, and there's a lot of wood, and they have that sense. And I agree, they get completely screwed. Michelin they just don't get, get that. Yeah, Michelin doesn't get it. But here's the thing that gets me doubly is that you say, oh, they're stuffy and they like a certain style of service, etc. Well, except when they're ostentatiously proving to us that they don't in a weird and clueless way, which is why I still don't understand how Schwa has a star, and I still don't understand how Longman and Eagle has a star. Not that I don't love Longman, but I don't understand how you can objectively say that is in a class different from, say, the Bristol or different from, say, Europe. Because that's what they're saying, is that Longman and Eagle, Longman and Eagle is in a different class. I want to go to Longman and Eagle. <laughs> it's the James Bond villain restaurant. Yeah. Longman and Eagle is in a different class than these other places. And I don't even think the Longman people could say that with a straight face. No, it was in a different class in... 2010 when it was new it's not a different class when there's longman and eagle and you know influenced places all over town exactly and so that's what makes me annoyed is not the stuffiness but the sort of stuffiness with a side of well we're gonna tell you we're not stuffy and have some authenticity and do it in a completely backwards bullshit way that's what annoys me well i shouldn't say that as their lawyer apparently (laughs) well and the other thing is uh, I mean, they're clearly much more stingy with the stars in Chicago than they are in other parts. I mean, especially Asia, where they're just throwing them around. But, uh, you know, with with New York and San Francisco, where they're much more generous with them. Well, so it's interesting. So I, I brought some numbers because I like numbers. Um, I'm not a mathematician, but and, I do and know this how to do... this is Exhibit A for do, the defense. I do know how to do simple math. And so I thought it would be interesting because we hear a lot of this sort of narrative about how other places get more Michelin attention than Chicago. And I bought into it. I'm like, oh, well, New York gets 90-something stars and Chicago is amazing and has a great food scene, so why do we only have 30? Well, if you actually break it down per capita, which is not necessarily the smartest way to do it, but it's a good averaging factor. New York and Chicago have almost exactly the same number of people per Michelin star. Hmm. So it actually balances out if you consider population numbers. Where we're really getting screwed is San Francisco. San Francisco, to give you a comparison point. But that's also Napa and things like that. Well, and I think that's even more where we're getting screwed. So if you look at Chicago, we have a Michelin star for about every 84,000 people. That's what it comes down to. If you look at San Francisco, assuming it's just the population of San Francisco, they have a Michelin star for every 15,000 people. They have 55 stars, and we have 31 stars. Now, even saying you include Napa, this is my problem with that. Chicago doesn't get to include the ancillary Midwest, in which I think you could probably find a fair number of at least really solid one-star restaurants. Beard seems to pull it off. Of these amazing restaurants in smaller Midwestern cities, they get completely ignored. But yet, all you have to do is be in wine country, and suddenly you're Michelin eligible. And that does not make any sense to me. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a totally different thing. I mean, that's that's like Vegas or Orlando or something where, you know, you have a ton of restaurants for reasons that don't have to do with your actual population. Yeah. And, I mean, the other thing, too, in San Francisco is, you know, San Jose is larger than San Francisco, but name a restaurant in San Jose. You know, I, I'm not, higher than a subway. I'm not sure there is one. <laughs> uh, That's fair enough. You know, so everyone noting, in San Jose has to go to San Francisco to eat. So. It's also worth noting, and this may give rise or give confirmation to the stereotype that British food sucks, um, which is that London is getting really screwed. Uh, London has a fair number of Michelin stars, but they actually have half the number of Michelin stars per capita yeah. that we do. Um, so we and can even at least less. say that. We're yeah. beating London. <laughs> yeah, and e- even fewer when you add in the population of Moscow, which is where all their fine dining scene is coming from. Right, anyway. exactly. Um, now, that being said, the baseline of Paris, good God. Paris has 120 Michelin stars. We can barely manage 
30. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know if that says more about how Michelin gives weight to French food or Chicago is just not there yet, and yeah. I don't know. All right. Well, you, that's a powerful argument. I can see the jury nodding in yeah, agreement exactly. with that. Um, yeah, I mean, the other the other issue that I have, and I, I said this in, in the reader column that I wrote about it, is... I mean, we saw they gave two awards, certainly well-deserved, Grace and 42 Grams. Yes. One got three stars, one got two stars. All their attention is on that upper level. And the total universe of restaurants that they deem, you know, eligible for that is a dozen, 15, yeah. you know. maybe They're even in the running. Yeah. And so they put all their focus on two of their three levels of rating. And meanwhile... Things happen to the restaurants in the one-star rating, and they don't have anywhere to go with them. You know, Boca has a new chef who's getting raves. It was one-star before. It's one-star now. Blackbird has a new chef. I don't know if he's better or worse than David Posey. Neither does Michelin. It's one-star both times. So they've, they've really cut themselves off from having enough room to speak. I mean, I used to read the old Gomeo guides, which aren't even published in English anymore, but they were in the 80s and 90s when I was learning about this stuff. And they had a 20-point scale, which interestingly did not allow the possibility of an actual 20-point restaurant. <laughs> the top rating was 19.5. They, they just felt like... It's like Play-Doh. There's the perfect restaurant yes, out there the somewhere. Perfection <laughs> should always be off in the distance. Yeah, I like that theory. No um, I, I, I agree. You know, and they could they could make news with you know costing somebody half a toke, you know, and things like that. That was a toke with a Q, not a K. And uh, the uh, you know, and Michelin just doesn't have they they've rendered their one star such a blunt instrument. I mean, you know, Matthew McConaughey can communicate more with gravity than they can communicate with. <laughs> <laughs> it's know. sad but true, and it seems somewhat tone deaf. The problem is that. I understand that, that there are some restaurants that come and go, but the thing that's most annoying is the inertia of the list. And if yes. this continues for years and years and years, it's not going to be about anything about the scene because apparently new restaurants can't break in at that one-star level. They need three years to know if they're any good, apparently. And that's completely insane. The, the one-star list should either turn over regularly or they should be awarding a couple new stars every year. And I mean, not to go into the list of restaurants that failed to make it, but there are plenty of one-star worthy places that for whatever reason Michelin decided weren't worthy and the problem is without further explanation or any other recognition it feels like they ignored them or they didn't notice they exist because they're too expensive to get big gourmands and there's nothing else well I just think in general it's it's crazy to think you need three years or two years to decide whether or not a restaurant is very good um it's not what restaurants are about it's not and it makes them seem irrelevant next to other media and i don't mean that in the sense of well the chicago magazine top 200 new restaurants list i mean in terms of the restaurants in chicago that are getting national attention right. that are getting food and wine mentions they're getting bon appetit mentions and you're wondering why these places that make like the top 10 best new restaurants in america aren't getting any notice from Michelin. I will be absolutely steamrolled. I hope I'm wrong, but I'll be steamrolled if Parachute gets a Michelin star next year. And yet every publication in Chicago has now said it's one of the best restaurants in Chicago. Right, right. And it won't get any mention because it's in Avondale and it's got plywood tables and no one's going to care. And it does ethnic food with Michelin doesn't quite understand. It doesn't quite get, yeah. I mean, they're still, they're in their second year of trying to decide if they like fat rice or not. Which is another just mystifying. Like, how yeah. is it possible that fat rice isn't on the list? I mean, I 
I it's now a I can I can yeah. say this now because it's gone. I liked Chiquetti more than Nico, but the fact that Nico didn't get any notice is also kind of mystifying. Yeah. Like it also got a ton of national attention. They need another year to eat at it. They, apparently they need another <laughs> year to eat at it, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about the other biggest story as the train goes by. Uh, the other biggest story ever to hit Chicago. Shake Shack. <laughs> Which I haven't been to yet. Yeah. I've Have only you been, been there? there? I went in New York. And you yeah, know, I've been in New York. I've never been in Chicago. We, we were exiting the American Museum of Natural History, mm-hmm. and there it was, and it was noon, and it served its purpose just fine. Yeah. And that's as high praise as I can give it, you know. Me too. It's, I would say the exact same thing from my Shake Shack experience. It was totally lovely. It was yeah. a very cold day I went to Shake Shack, so the fact that there was hot french fries made me happy. But beyond that, I don't get it. Yeah, we've got lots of... I mean, I think... I mean, Emberger doing its sort of platonic version of McDonald's is better. Edzo's is better. If you want to go to the high-end burger craze, I'm a huge DMK fan. DMK is better. DMK is better. Uh, If you want to go to any of the fancy restaurants that have burgers, those are head and shoulders better. And I know that's not the point. It's a griddled burger. But the other thing, and I admit, I'm a hippie weirdo when it comes to these things. Epic Burger and DMK do burgers at not a crazy price point that are actually unique and special, both in terms of flavor and in terms of sourcing. Whereas Shake Shack makes some sort of all-natural claims that don't mean very much, especially given the volume they're doing. Right. I just don't understand how they're any different from anything else, except for the fact that they've got the Shake Shack name behind it. Yeah. No, if you want... If you want a really good burger, you know, support your local guy. Support Edzo's. Support Lead Belly up on yep. the northwest side, which which I love. Yep. It's it smacks. I mean, going back to Michelin, it sort of smacks of Chicago's weird desire to be worldly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's the same thing with the frenzy with Italy, yeah. which Italy is a genuinely amazing place that I love. I was there two nights ago. But the frenzy over Italy was only partially because Italy's awesome and partially because, oh my goodness, we're finally getting something New York and New York Europe has. has. Yeah. And yeah. I feel the same way about God Shake help Shack. us if Dinosaur Barbecue comes here, you know. God. It'll be the greatest barbecue ever to hit here. Well, and I think it's instructive because when, when Sonic came for the first time, which is also a sort of cult place, but not right. from New York, yeah. it drew lines but there was nowhere near the level of media frenzy. Kevin Pang was not standing in line two hours <laughs> not, after opening at Sonic Burger. for the puff of white smoke and announcing the first burger. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that's interesting because it has equally a cult following. Yeah. It's equally good according to its proponents. But oh my God, it comes from the West Coast, not the Halloween. No, it comes from the Midwest. Or the Midwest. Oh I, God, I'm I actually went to high school with the son of the present owner of, of Sonic. Well, there you go. But it doesn't count. And that's yeah. how that doesn't quite work. And that's, that's what sort of confuses me is this weird hero worship thing. I don't I'm understand. just glad to have a cherry lime made in town. That's good. I have I have Sonic marked on my GPS because so, I could never remember that weird corner in Uptown. Spoken like a true Midwesterner. Yeah. But, you know, on a hot day, you know, a, a cherry lime made from Sonic is, is a fine thing. It's true. It doesn't need to be artisanal. So, let's Let's talk. 2014. How was it? I think 2014 was pretty good. Um, we're back in growth, which is nice. I remember when we talked for the first time a year ago, um, good God, we were coming off some some bad years. Um, even before that, we were coming off some bad years. We had a lot of closings. There were some exciting openings, but it wasn't like rip-roar and awesome. 
Um, and we've had some sad closings this year, and I don't want to overstate the extent to which 2014 is going to be perfect. But we've had some pretty good restaurants in 2014 that I think yeah. everyone's excited about. I, th- I think in terms of closings, we've had a normal level of closings. Exactly. Where I felt for so long, and I, I was when I was covering stuff at... At Grub Street, particularly, I, I would just say, you know, these things keep opening and nothing ever bombs. Yeah. And nothing, you know, and nothing that's been around a while ever, like, has kind of reached the end of its days. It really felt like... There, need, there was a cliff somewhere that needed Yeah. And, you know, and finally, you know, a few things, you know, Bowman Bricks and Kabocha and a few things, you know, in that, in that area didn't make it. But it, it was just freakish. Uh, that that nothing was closing, yeah. you know, that everything survived. Well, apparently there is an infinite number of mini-dress-clad River North squealing girls because those restaurants, as no matter how bad they are or how generic they are, always seem to pack them in. With Paris Club, as you wrote a couple weeks ago, being the only exception that had to do sort of a reconcept, probably because it was too complicated <laughs> for that crowd. Um, but that's the, that's, that is mystifying to me as well. I never understand how these restaurants stay in business. There are all those places that I just don't, think of like they're sort of like oh I, when I walk down Hubbard Street I'm, it's like a, it's like a map of my inbox but it's the part of my inbox that I delete <laughs> automatically as soon as it comes in it's like oh a press release from Hubbard Inn not to insult Hubbard Inn because I'm sure it's perfectly lovely but I've never written anything about it and I can't imagine it's about it's it. odd um, right. I, I can't I don't even remember the food I just remember thinking that it had this sort of uh, you know haunted mansion <laughs> feel to it that, that's not a bad thing yeah I mean for food it might be but so so what are some of your big hits I mean you clearly like Bohemian House I like Bohemian House I didn't I didn't love it I'm disappointed that I did not love pierogi there so it seems like that's you know, that's that right. the baseline that's like failing to make pancakes at a place called you know pancake hut yeah. um, but I liked other things there and I I the other thing I just liked, I found endearing, is it's not a freaking Italian restaurant in oh River God. North. It's and it's a shame because the only one that was good and distinctive is gone, and it has the goneness of it has nothing to do with lack of demand. And it makes me very sad that Cicchetti is closed. My favorite of the crop of Italian, you could say generic, I don't think Cicchetti was generic, but of the Italian openings, <laughs> yeah, the only Because one it was I Swedish, liked, that's the, why. Well, exactly. <laughs> the only one I like died, and it died because of pointless drama, and it didn't die because it was bad. It was packed every night I was in there two weeks before it was closed and it was full on a weekday night and that just makes me depressed and there's, it's the restaurant business I get it there's no way around it but we, that's an example of a restaurant we lost that I'm gonna miss for a long time because I went there a lot with my own money yeah uh, but I mean we got Parachute which as much as it's got it's one of those few restaurants where it's gotten an enormous amount of press and everyone's right that doesn't yeah. happen very often <laughs> usually if someplace gets enormous amounts of press it's because they have very very good PR or they have a few dishes on the menu that are attention worthy and the rest is kind of meh yeah. and Parachute is amazing yeah. like it is completely perfect well and I feel about it like I felt about Fat Rice in it's first year or so which is every time I go better uh, every time I go it's better uh, you can feel that they're Abilities and confidence in it have grown since the last time, yeah. you know, and that's that's encouraging because obviously the normal phase is to love something the first time and then not quite love it as much the second time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then and, you- and they really, you know, they're really growing into the place in such a good way, and I think it's going to be 
a star for some years as Fat Rice is. Absolutely. And, and there's so many other big hits of the... I, I always confuse late 2013 with early 2014. <laughs> yeah. I don't have a January 1st ticket. Right, yet. I don't know where... But th- between th- places like Dusex that continue also, I think, right. to get better, they're really hitting their stride. You have places like Nico, which I frankly didn't love the first time I went, but I really do now. I like it a lot. There are even even places like Stella Barra, which is a pizzeria run by Lettuce Entertain You, and I've been back a couple times because it's pretty good and it's worth going to. I mean, there's a lot... Solero is doing interesting yeah. things. There's all these places that are doing interesting, non-generic things. There's also 400 new Italian restaurants that are doing right. exactly the same thing over and over again. Mm. But even there, we have an Italian star in A10, I think. I mean, yes. I found A10 really strong. Um you know, just that that more than the, the various U shows was where I felt you could really see the Trotter influence in what Merges's kitchen is putting out because it's it's that precision of ingredients. I mean, there's there's a thing on the top of this, and it tastes exactly like it, as good as it gets, and it is perfectly placed there. Absolutely, and, and a great meal there, and that that is heads above. 99% of the Italian in town, which just doesn't have that kind of care and precision to it. And we're ignoring it because it got Michelin recognition and is therefore no longer authentic for weird geeks like us. But the fact that 42 Grams, which we went to together the first time, yeah. I've been back since, both times were the best meal I had in 2014 in succession. Hmm. And it's amazing to think that, oh my goodness, someone can go from pop-up to two Michelin stars in the space of a year. Yeah. And that yeah. really shows you can't do that with PR. You can you yeah. have to do that with talent. And I think that Jake has done that with just amazing talent and I'm so happy for it. So why are you saying that I am dismissing it cuz I'm going to get an email about that. I'm not <laughs> saying that you're dismissing it. I'm saying that in our list of best restaurants okay. of 2014, it hadn't come to mind and I think one of the reasons is because it just got all these Michelin stars. So yeah. it's like, well, they don't need us to talk about it because it's right. fancy now. No, it's true. We're not going to be able to get in either. Speaking of throwing the best around, I mean, clearly the Rattler is the best uh, Bavarian beer hall with bicycles on the wall. And, uh, and um, I mean, that's one I really like, in part because it's relatively close to my neighborhood and I can I can just go and you can actually get in. Yeah, I can. It's a it's a hot modern restaurant that I can go to and walk into without having to like pull strings or anything <laughs> so you know <laughs> isn't that nice it's so rare I mean, and even though it doesn't get as much attention and I'm going to be a little controversial for saying this I still think that, that Kinmont is doing a pretty solid job huh. I really like that place I've been I've been a couple times I think it's beautiful I think their cooked food is really really interesting I'm not saying it would be on my top 10 list it would probably be on my top 20 list though um, of interesting new places to open in 2014 I wanted to like like it a lot. I want to, you know. I mean, I like Duncan. He he won the reader key ingredient cook-off thing, and deservedly so. Um, but I just find I feel like he's being held back a bit by, you know, they're they're making kind of simple. You know, it's the platonic ideal of McCormick and Schmick. They they make they make simple fish and And I'm kind of okay with that. It's hard to find. I've got, I'm so tired of it's the reason I keep going back to places like Shaw's, which is because sometimes and this happens a lot in the meat universe but less in the fish universe done well. Sometimes you just need that good solid classic thing which is really easy to find in Boston and not so easy to find in Chicago. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I'm 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 for fish. 
So <laughs> you're, which, you're, you're pro fish. I'm pro fish. I'm, I am pro fish it's, as well. It's, <laughs> but you know, it's. I mean, it is one of those things. It's like it's hard. I you know, I grew up in Kansas. Fish were rectangular and and lived in beds of breadcrumbs. Orange. And uh, they were orange. <laughs> they were orange. All fish was orange. Yeah. Whether it was and, orange ruffy or not. And uh, so I I like just anybody doing fish stuff. I, partly I feel like I'm traveling the world. Partly I feel that it's just it's one of the few things left that I haven't I haven't eaten every possible iteration of and know all about. Well, and and, speaking of fish stuff, right? If we want to talk about fish stuff, two restaurants we haven't mentioned much. MFK. I wasn't talking about MFK. Oh, okay. See, three restaurants. Three restaurants. Before. Okay. Uh, I was going to say actually the be- one of the best pieces of fish I had this year was at Reconcepted Boca, which we mentioned briefly, but deserves a mention as one of the top ten right. new. I'm doing air quotes restaurants of the year that blows me away I've been back multiple times it's perfect every time it is not better than it was under Giuseppe it's completely different and right. it's amazing and then the second place that we haven't talked about probably because it's a little bit too new but if we're talking about great fish is Momotaro which is amazing because who thought you could open a theme park restaurant in Chicago <laughs> and do it well? Like that's yeah. the amazing part is they it's literally a theme park restaurant. It should be in Las Vegas and it's good. And that's, I mean, that's Boca group, I guess they have amazing standards and they tend to turn out great products, but that's going to be on our list of amazing places. And it might sort of slide into our 2015 list because right. it's opening so close to the end of the year. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the other thing about it is I feel like it's going to have a bit of a shakeout in terms of, you know, its 97-page menu. Some of the adventurous stuff will go away. Yeah, I mean, that's unfortunate. But also, I mean, I think it'll become more coherent overall, uh, and that's fine. You know, that's that's a natural process of evolution. I'm not objecting to that as them having bungled something by any means so other restaurants let's see we mentioned mfk and actually mfk oh you haven't been to it yet okay well then we won't mention mfk oh it's very high on my list of places to go it's probably the number one place actually um you know where i'm going this weekend where i never got to while it was in its opening phases is tet charcuterie oh okay yeah you know it's funny i tried the food at a preview i thought this is all really good but i can't see like loving this and going back for charcuterie and i went back and i still kind of felt that and by like the third time that i had been back i'm just like okay this is this is great (laughs) (laughs) i feel like nick rand had a similar experience where he went and he was very surprised that he liked it and that's my favorite kind of review where you can tell that the reviewer for whatever reason preconceptions or the name or the concept or the space is really begrudgingly (laughs) loving the place but they do and that's my favorite kind of review I wasn't begrudging I just felt like you know this is going to be this big slab of meat with visible cubes of fat in it and I just shouldn't (laughs) like that too much (laughs) and I did and I do so um, yeah I mean they're one of my top openings 42 grams Rattler Parachute um, I mean, I, mean I gotta I, go back and say, I mean, I don't I feel like a complete shill for saying this, but I gotta give Italy some credit. Yeah. I was there. I, I go fairly regularly for bits and pieces because I work downtown now, but I went two nights ago for actual dinner, which I very rarely do. And I went in on a Tuesday night, and it was pleasant. It was full, but not crazy. I went into their beer restaurant, which was two thirds empty, but still bustling enough to be full absolutely pitch perfect service you can tell they train them with whips and chains because they are perfect (laughs) absolutely perfect every pour is perfect on the table in the glass every piece of bread is perfect the food was great 
it was not anything innovative, but it was amazingly solid. So wait, which of the 73 restaurants did you go to? I went to Birreria, which is the beer restaurant. My favorite is the vegetarian restaurant, but the person I was with wanted meat. And you know what? I went in thinking it would be a gimmick, and I've been amazed. I not only went in thinking it would be a gimmick, but went in thinking in six months, half this shit's going to be gone, and they're going to have the same generic stuff everyone else does. And I've got to give their massive corporate behemoth credit. Every restaurant I've been to repeatedly is getting better, frankly. Mm. I think that their signature restaurant, from all reviews, I have not been back, has gotten much better. And they have a service training program that I can only imagine will make you into a perfect waiter in five minutes or less. And so I think that I would not have thought when it opened that I was going to think that is an amazing thing for the Chicago food scene sitting on Ohio Street in a behemoth building. From out of town. From out of town. And I got to say, I kind of think it is. I kind of think it is, in all honesty. I have a question for you, which is, we have now been through multiple iterations of the casual thing that gets gussied. So it was burgers in 2010... 2011 it was chicken and then it was pie and now we're sort of waiting for the next one i feel like pie is about to go off the edge (laughs) and in the sense that it's going to be normal to have fancy pie because that's what happens it's not that they all close it's now normal to have fancy cupcakes it's normal to have fancy burgers it's normal to have fancy chicken it's now about normal to have fancy pie what's gonna be the next ramen thing. i think ramen's no, already done. I, ra- plus the ramen doesn't get any fancier that's right, the thing is it yeah is it doesn't yeah. it's not like i go to one of these newfangled ramen places and have any better or different ramen than i would have at a ramen shack yeah i don't know what it is what is it it's a good question i don't know chicken and waffles i just wrote, you about, just wrote that. about that there, that's no, just, it's just a variation it. on chicken it is interesting i mean that was that was interesting to me right writing about that was just seeing how much it had invaded the north side and how you know if you search chicken and waffles on yelp how many brunch places have it now and honest to god i don't think it existed in the city 10 years ago or it existed at dailies at you know whatever that 95th and whatever whatever it is um and that has just taken over everywhere what is left among American comfort tacos. Tacos, and, they're, and, they're, and it's happening right now. The number of fancy taco that. places that are opening is skyrocketing. Yeah. And of course, most of this is to do with margins. I mean, you're, you're taking things that are relatively low cost. You're yeah. gussying them up with more low cost and charging large amounts of money for them, which right. is always good for any business owner's ears. Um, but it's interesting because you hear a lot of talk in the wake of Michelin about how fine dining is kaput. There's a few exceptions, but no one is opening five-star restaurants right now not no one but very few people and grace right. being a weird exception yeah and so the only way that can continue is that people keep opening these really interesting chef-driven cheapo places and what's it going to be you can't open four more fried chicken places you know you can say oh everybody's doing that and then you try to think well how many are really great places i mean it's like italian food we have more italian food in this town than almost anywhere how many of them are really good it's it's a short list. And and you know what? That was one of the reasons I, I have a story coming out in a couple of weeks about Formentos, which is the new Italian place from the Bristol team. I'm not usually excited about Italian restaurants. And I'm a little bit excited about this. I'll be cautious in my excitement. But I'm a little excited only because 
they are actually trying to do vaguely interesting things. Like they're they're trying to do they're unabashed about their Italian American red sauceness, and they're still trying to do interesting things. And I am Italian, so I can take almost any amount of Italian food and not be tired of it. But what you're saying, I agree with, which is that I'm tired of the mediocrity. I'm tired yeah. of the monotony. You can open ten Italian restaurants on my block, and if they were all good and all unique, I would go to all of them because Italian food is amazing and encompasses a lot. Well, my feeling is that you know there's a lot of B minus Italian food at That's home. That's the problem. And the, you know what the thing is. About about B minus Italian food. I know how to make that myself. Exactly. And that's a difference between B minus Italian food and I think your point in your article about Paris Club, which was very good, which is B plus, A minus. French food, which Chicago doesn't have nearly enough of, and you don't make it home. At least you don't as often make it right. home. And that's what we're missing. I would much rather have 10 more brasseries open and not 10 more Italian places. And my wish will never come yeah. true because Americans don't like snails and duck confit apparently <laughs> as much as they like spaghetti, which is because they're dumb. Yeah. But I want my I want my duck confit and my snails much more than I want another plate of Italian sausage with red sauce. Well, to go back to fermentos, my feeling about fermentos, I mean, I wasn't wild about the concept. It seemed, you know, kind of a cash grab, even if I knew that those guys would execute it well. Because you've been to the preview dinner. I went to one of the preview yeah. dinners. So, I mean, I only tried three things, but I mean, they were all made with real care for like accentuating the flavors and yep. not making glop. Yep. And that's that was when the, I had the same thing. That's the issue with Italian food is, you know, here's your pasta, glop. Here's your red sauce, glop. You want some cheese? Glop. <laughs> and you know, this was this was totally anti glop Italian American food and, and so I was pleased with that. It remains to be seen, you know well, I mean, their, hopefully their ultimate test is, is chicken Vesuvio. Which they're so, gonna have on the menu. I'm sure they will. It's I'm sure they will. It's gonna be on the menu, so I'm excited about that. So what else? What other places I'm trying to think. Well, I mean the single greatest dish in the city of Chicago is we're oat, gonna fight oatmeal at Baker Miller. Yeah, no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're not gonna fight. Uh. I mean, I just loved the you know the texture of it is so unusual. And I was talking to Dave, and you know he gave me this long explanation that I can't even remember all of. But you know the the big bits of the oats make one texture, and the little bits of the oats make another texture, and the half and half that he cooks it in you know brings out the something of something and. <laughs> You know, I was like, okay, whatever. You're a great food writer, Mike. Yeah, I don't know, whatever. But it's just, you know, this amazing texture as you're eating it that that even gets over the fact that they insist on serving it kind of lukewarm, which is odd to me. But I mean, we can quibble over whether any stars mean anything anymore from any publication, but the fact that a bakery serving oatmeal got four stars and probably deserved them from time out is saying yeah. something. I mean, they, they that's amazing. And that's a perfect example of someone taking something to its ideal. Yeah. And that's what I absolutely love. That's why I love so many of these places. And they're gimmicky, absolutely. But that's why I keep going back to Honey Butter. I was at Honey Butter for a big event a couple weeks ago, and they it was catered. They did it all in advance. And every single one of the 50 people at that event left with gigantic, goofy grins on their faces. <laughs> and the reason was because they've taken this one product, and it is perfect. It is absolutely perfect. It could not be any better than it is. If it had bones, it could be. But... No, I like it without the bones. <laughs> okay. But I, that's the sort of thing I really love, is to see a chef saying, I'm going to refine it to that absolute pitch perfect place and that's what hasn't happened with ramen and that's what kind of makes me sad about you saying maybe there's a ramen craze is because no one for me has gotten it to that pitch perfect place yet all right what else is what else is opened we know what closed hot dogs closed hot dogs closed we can all mourn all um yeah you know i never managed to get back in like the last year 
of hot dogs. I mean, it's not like I didn't go there 10 million times. I mean, it was sort of my de facto office because I lived so close to the old one that anybody who wanted to have a meeting with me for, you know, advertising stuff, they'd be like, we can meet at hot dogs. It's like, yeah, okay, I got hot dogs again. (laughs) No, and he did it right. Just like, I mean, it was exactly like Ina. In fact, they're on a panel together in a couple weeks. It's people who close businesses on their own terms. And it was a really good... I think it was the right decision. I mean, it was the right thing to do. If he wanted to get out, it was the right way to do it. Yeah. Um, it was the same thing Trotter did in a certain sense. I mean, th- yeah. hopefully Doug is not not long for this world. But <laughs> I think he's studying philosophy. No, oh, no, he's getting a PhD at the University of Chicago. <laughs> right. But that's sort of, I really like that. And I wish that, I wish that more places would have a sense of their natural lifespan. Because all restaurants have one, except for the very few that last 100 years. And those yeah. usually aren't places that are ever of the moment. They're places that sort of drift through through time as a service right. to a restaurant. But it's so nice to see, even if it's not that the chef's retiring, but, oh, this is sort of, I'm done. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm over. This thing is done now. It's so nice to see it when it's intentional. When it's, I am solvent and I've decided this thing's going to end in six months and it's going to end in six months. And it makes me sad when places that I love, even though I understand that life is finite and longevity ends, it makes me sad when places that I love don't do that and instead sort of walk out on their bills or close the doors or disappear. Yeah. And that's how I felt. Remember last year when West Town Tavern shut down? Yeah. One of my favorite restaurants in the city and was packed every night and I know was solvent, at least I strongly suspect was solvent, and it just gone. Well, they did that weird thing too with the Mexican pop up. Just end up there, to to just like freezers. get rid of yeah, exactly to empty the freezers. And it made me sad, not because I, which was kind Susan, of hilarious. She have the right to do whatever she wants. Yeah. She had a long career. She was tired. She got worked every day. Okay, fine. Then announce your closing in two months and give your customers some closure and go out on a high note. And I really like it when places do that. And that's why I was so happy, despite the sarcasm and the weirdness and the crazy national NPR stories about right. hot dogs. I thought that was exactly the way to do it. I hope that one of the things we're talking about achieves that kind of status. I don't know if any of the things we've mentioned tonight will, but yeah. that's the sort of thing that's good for a city, right? It's much better for a city than Michelin. It's much more important for a city to have those kinds of iconic places that are iconic in their own right. We now would call them viral. But, you know, they're <laughs> iconic in the sense they do something amazing that draws people in naturally, and they never have PR, and they get media attention, and they get more media attention, and they become a cult figure. And that's the kind of thing that is much more important to Chicago and to Chicago neighborhoods and to the Chicago food scene than any Michelin three-star restaurant could ever hope to be. Let's get this catchy little number stuck in your heads good and tight. Thanks again for listening, and thanks to Don Curry, Scott Worsham and Nick LaCasse, Bartlett Durand, and Anthony Todd. Music is by Kevin McLeod, and speaking of Kickstarters, there's one for a documentary about him and the music he writes for internet projects. I'll have the link for that, too, at skyfullofbacon.com. This is episode 15. See you in the new year. Somebody got after me for naming myself the Zen Butcher. And I'm like, I didn't name myself. You didn't? I said, no, this guy did a documentary. That's what he called me. I'm like, oh.
Okay. <laughs> you, you've offended the local Buddhist community in Black Earth, Wisconsin. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. <laughs>